Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job and Job and chapter number 38. Job and chapter number 38. Now we've been through a series that we just started last week on the Holy Scriptures. And with it we're trying to take about 24 messages just to build upon it bit by bit by bit to try to get across the understanding of what the Word of God is. That it, it comes from God. We spoke about inspiration. We talked about that inspiration means God breathed stating that God is the author of the Bible. And he did use human penmen. We spoke about what type of inspiration we believe that we believe in what is called verbal plenary inspiration of God. That the idea of verbal means the very words itself. Plenary, when added to it, means each and every word. We believe that each and every word of God is inspired. Not part of the words, but each and every word found in the word of God is inspired. Then this morning we took some time to speak about a doctrine talking about the in errancy of the Bible. And the inerrancy of the scriptures speak about that the Bible is without error. In fact, we flip it around and say it this way, that the Bible is truth. That the Bible has nothing but truth. The Bible is truth. And we spoke about that doctrine and proved it from the word of God and gave many references showing that the Bible in its entirety is inerrant. And then we also explained a little bit about what inerrancy is. That there's some misunderstandings, misthings, that when we give approximations, when we give uh, the appearance of language, meaning speaking from our own point of view and explaining things as we see it, um, we spoke about those type of things dealing with inerrancy that they are still true. That if I give an estimate on something the, that they are true. And then as we kind of finished off and bouncing in tonight that we know that there are some people that believe that the Bible is inspired as concerning spiritual things like salvation. But the Bible is not inspired when it comes to the idea of history, when it comes to the idea of science, when it comes to the idea of these other things. That's what we're going to hit about tonight when we deal with the accuracy of the Word of God, the accuracy of the Word of God. And so with this, if you don't mind, I'd like to start off in the book of Job and chapter number 38. Job chapter 38, and if you don't mind, let's just start in verse number 1 and we'll read down just for a bit and then we'll take a pause. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in Job chapter 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. Gird up thy loins now like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast 
thou, when I laid the foundations of the earth. Declare if thou hath understanding. Who hath led, laid the measures thereof? If thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And if you don't mind, we'll pause there. And with this, we're going to use this as a text to kind of bounce off what we're thinking about, talking about tonight. Speaking about the accuracy of God's word. The accuracy of God's word. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And I thank you so much that we could trust you, that we could depend upon you, and that your word is true. And you know my desire tonight is just to show from your word that the Bible is accurate and that the Bible is trustworthy in every subject that it deals with. Lord, I'm asking that you would use this knowledge to help us to trust your word more, depend upon it, and be willing to submit ourselves to your word and your authority. Again, I dare not trust this my, my own. I dare not trust my own flesh, my own intellect, my own knowledge, that we can only trust you and your word, your spirit. You do your own work explaining and speaking about your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I stated this morning, we spoke about this morning in length about the inerrancy of the Word of God. Meaning that we believe not only did God inspire each and every word, but we believe that the Bible itself is without error. That the Bible is true in all things. Now, as we had mentioned, there are some people who take a different view. They believe that the Bible is inerrant in subjects that it deals with on spiritual matters such as salvation. However, there are most Christians, and I may say that, that we're in a minority, most Christians do not believe the Bible is accurate or correct. They believe it's an error when it speaks about things of science when it speaks about things of history, and I'm going to throw prophecy in there as well. What do I mean by that? Well, there are many people that say, well, I believe the Bible is true, but I don't really buy that Adam and Eve thing. Well, I believe that the Bible is true, but I also believe in evolution. There's no way that God created the world in six little days. Well, I believe the Bible is true, but I, I don't think that it's correct in its science. I believe that it's inaccurate in this because it doesn't fit my philosophy, my point of view, and whatnot. Well, in order to answer that, I would love to show you some places, and a whole bunch if you don't mind, dealing with the accuracy of the Bible. Now, we know that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. However, every place where it deals in science, it is accurate. The Bible itself is not necessarily a historical textbook. However, in every part that it deals with history, it is accurate accurate. And we believe in the accuracy of God's word because there's a God who knows everything. Here's a God who just didn't give us things that are true about salvation, but then gave us mythologies and fables that we could carry on in other parts. 
Every part of God is inspired of God, written by God, and without error, and accurate in everything it deals with. To start off with, I would like to talk to you about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Let's start there. The scientific accuracy of the Bible. Now, I gave you a handout. You could go ahead and look at it later, but I'd like to start in the book of Job. And the reason why this is so important is because of the context of this. In the book of Job, we see that there's an amazing thing occurring that Job is not on trial in this book. God is on trial. That Satan has accused God of not being good and not being worthy of worship. In order to prove his point that God has agreed to allow Job to serve as testimony. Now Job has no clue what's going on. But Satan had said, listen, God, you are not worthy of worship. And to prove it, you go ahead and take away the blessings from Job. You go ahead and let him have some bad times. Allow him to have some affliction. And watch, he'll curse you as you, soon as you remove your blessings. Implying that God is not worthy of worship when bad things happen. That as long as God's doing good, where bills are getting paid, we get rainbows, we can say God's good. But we are allowed, according to what Satan is trying to accuse God, that if we're having a bad day, we stubbed our toe, our tire went flat, it snowed outside, it's too hot, it's too cold, that we have the right to complain and murmur and say God's not good. But God is good no matter what happens to us. And that we as followers of him can worship him in the good times and worship him in the bad times. And so God says, all right, just as long as you don't touch him, Go ahead. And so in the same day, in fact, just hour by hour by hour, Job found out that he lost his entire uh, wealth. He lost his entire business. He lost all of his children. And he received the news shortly after one, after another, after another. Now, how many of you would think that's a great day? That's a day you want to face. <laughs> Not at all. But how did Job respond? He said, naked I came into this world, naked I'll come out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Think about that. He still praised God even though he lost all of his children. He lost all of his finances, lost all of his health. Well, Satan goes back to God and God said, see, you had me curse Job. And Job didn't curse me. You, you, allowed, you had bad things happen to him and he still didn't curse him. Still he retained his integrity. Bible says that word integrity carries the idea of, of being complete or whole or, or being having good character. And Satan says, listen, he still has his health. You let someone hurt and he will curse you. And God says, all right, just don't kill him. And so now Job has um, <coughs> gone through all of those losses and now he is in physical pain. He's got boils from the top of his head to the bottom of the feet. They are oozing out pus. They hurt. It's, he's at the place where he can't eat. The Bible describes him that he's lost weight. He's gray and ashen. He's looking skeletal. He's very sick. And yet, he still doesn't curse God. Now, Satan's not above cheating, so he does. He gathers three of Job's closest friends to come encourage him. Now, when they mean by encourage was something different than what we would think of encouragement. Their idea of encouragement is that they got together, and by the way, Satan was behind this too, and convinced them that Job had sinned. And the reason why all these bad things happen is because Job was a bad sinner. And that if Job would somehow just get to the place where he confesses his sin, 
that God would reverse everything. And that God wouldn't do this for no reason. There's got to be a reason. And by the way, there is always a reason. But it's not necessarily the way that we think. So do not get in the habit when someone has their gallbladder out to say, you know what this is? This is your tithes and offerings. You should have been catching up. God's going to get one way or another. That's not the encouragement people need. But they came with the purpose of accusing Job. And we could see that all throughout the rest of the chapter, it's this conversation between Job's three friends and Job. And each of them are trying to pressure Job. Just confess! Confess that you're a sinner! And Job says, listen, I'm not claiming to be perfect. I know I'm a sinner, but as, as much as I know how, I'm right with God. I'm confessed up. I, I've, I've dealt with these things. And they try to pressure Job. Finally, they get to the place where they're just staring at each other. Everybody's mad. Everybody's frustrated. Nobody's helped. No one's encouraged, by the way. In fact, Job said, miserable comforters you are. But tagging along with those three friends was a freshman in Bible college. Now, that's my name for them because freshmen in Bible college have all of the answers. They know everything. And everyone else is wrong. And let me tell you. And so here is Eliab who watches this and says, I came tagged along expecting to learn something from you. But instead, you're all wrong. And you see his speech, and for seven chapters he goes on, and you see the word, I, 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 me, me, my, my. Let me give you knowledge. And he goes on. Finally, God has enough. And in chapter 38, God speaks in. Notice as God now interferes with this encouraging message that Job has received from his friend for the last couple of days and the freshman in Bible college. Verse, uh, chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So what happened is a big tornado came and the tornado began to speak. If that didn't grab your attention, I don't know what would. And so as this tornado begins to speak, God speaks out of it and says, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Pause there. It is my personal belief he is speaking to that freshman in Bible college who just spoke out of pride for all of those chapters. Now, verse number three, he's now addressing Job specifically. Gird up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee an answer, and, or demand of thee and answer thou me. God says, listen, Job, pay attention because there is a test after I'm done. Now, if God tells you that there's going to be a test, you better be listening well because there's going to be a test. And notice with me in verse number four. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? question mark. And in here, God begins several chapters of asking Job question. If I remember correctly, 74 questions God answers Job or asks Job. And by the way, all of these are answered with God. God is the one who's in control. God is the one who's there. Now, in the midst of this, God begins to give these questions and answering questions that Job could not know of himself, but he could say, God, God. Now, he doesn't answer. He's listening. Chapter after chapter, God's listing these questions. But with these questions, we begin to see the brilliance of God as God begins to give scientific knowledge 
that they did not know then. In fact, that we are still catching up today. Now, I'm not going to go through every chapter of Job to the here, but I'd like to give you some highlights and tell you that the rest of the Bible has some of the same uh, scientific information. Notice as we start, we'll hit creation just a bit, and then I'll start hitting these scientific things. Verse number four, where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou understandest. So Job, was you there when I created everything? And of course the answer is no, you was not. God was. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who hath stitched the line upon it? Where upon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Alright, Job, how did things fit together? How was the earth and the sky? How's the sun and the sky? How does it work? Do you know how this works? Who measured it? Who did all this? And again, nothing to be answered. Verse number 7 is where we start seeing some science that I would like to point out to you. When the morning stars sang together. Did you know that stars sing? The Bible says they do. We understand that the stars in the sky, that they emit electromagnetic waves. That we know that different stars are of different colors and they set off radio waves and that we can actually record them. In NASA they have what is called the Kepler mission and in the Kepler mission they actually record the music, the sound waves that come from the stars. By the way is an interesting thing as we listen to those things and by the way you could go to the NASA website and listen to the star radio waves yourself on the Kepler mission but it is amazing that all of those radio waves from the stars are in harmony. What a wonderful God. But we didn't even know that stars sang or emitted radio waves until more recently. They definitely didn't know it in Job's day. How could they write about it then if they didn't know about it? Because God did. God is accurate in all things science. Let's just jump down if you don't mind. Notice with me in verse number 16. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Question mark. Did you know that we didn't even realize there were springs in the depth of the sea till 1977? But God knew about it. The Bible is accurate, is accurate in everything dealing with science, including things that we ourselves are still discovering. That the Bible's already said these things. Back in Job's day, remember that Job is the oldest book of the Bible. And all the way back then, God is giving scientific knowledge, showing that God knows science. That's pretty intelligent, right? God created everything. He should know how things work. And that he knew that there were springs in the depths of the sea. Notice with me, if you don't mind, <laughs> verse 19 talks about light uh, dwelleth in particle. You know, we're still understanding that light has mass and that light uh, is a particle. Notice with me in verse 30, uh, 24, still speaking about light. By which way is light parteth, which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? Did you know that light controls the wind? Well, the Bible speaks about that here, that it controls the east wind, the scatter of the east wind of the world. Here in the book of Job, we're learning scientific knowledge that they did not know back then, but we have discovered that since. And God was accurate in these scientific matters. Notice with me, verse number 25, still speaking about light and lightning. Who had divided the water course for the overflowing waters or a way that the lightning of thunder? 
Did you know that lightning and thunder are related? Well, you say, of course. Well, that's because we're taught that. But you know, in the ancient world, they did not know that. In fact, like the ancient Greece began uh, say that thunder came because of the gods were bowling or something along those lines. They had different ways of explaining it. But we know that thunder is a result of the superheated lightning that's going at thousands uh, of degrees that superheats the air and sets off a sonic boom. It's a result of the lightning. Here the Bible ties those things together. Notice if you don't mind in verse number 35. Canst thou send lightnings? Let's pause. How many people are lucky to be alive because you cannot cast lightnings? <laughs> it says, can y'all cast lightnings? No. But notice as it goes on. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, here are we. Did you know that you could send messages using electricity? Well, that's something our modern world has. Telephones. How does TV work? Electromagnetic waves that are travel through the air that go into, well, it used to be the TV antenna that used to have to go. But we have in, right now, in this room, we have sounds that are going through and that if you have a radio and tune it in properly, you could actually hear those sounds. We could communicate because of electricity. And again, this is a scientific principle that they didn't know back then. But we do now. Now again, I could go on and on. I've given you a whole handout that gives you a lot more. I'm just giving you a taste from one chapter of the Bible. That speaks about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. That anywhere that the Bible speaks of in any subject, that the Bible is accurate. Now, since these people had no official knowledge of these scientific facts until more than a thousand years after the Bible is written, this is scientific proof that the Bible was inspired of God because He knew these things. That the Bible is accurate in science. Well, let's try history. Not only is the Bible accurate when it deals with scientific things, the Bible is accurate dealing with historical things. Notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. And I want to show you something interesting concerning historical things. Joshua chapter 24. So remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua 24. In Joshua 24, I want to show you a name of a tribe of a group of people that is mentioned in the Bible. Notice with me in Joshua 24, notice with me in verse 11. Joshua 24 and verse 11. It says, And ye went over Jordan and came unto Jericho, and the man of Jericho fought against you the Amorites, the Prezesites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. Notice if you don't mind the name of one of these specific tribes, the Hittites. The Hittites. Now for many, many years that archaeologists and historians found no evidence of Hittites. And all the way up until about the 18-1900s, the Hittites was used, these people, was used as a way to show that the Bible wasn't true. They say, look, it's a made-up name. This is not historically accurate. There was no such thing as the Hittites. The Bible is wrong. 
And so there was entire books written that said the Bible's not true. Let me prove, you, prove it to you. There is no such thing as the Hittites. Well, wouldn't you know that in the 1800s, they began to discover a whole civilization that was called the Hittites. And they were a powerhouse within the ancient world. They settled in what we call modern day Turkey. And in fact, Ramses II of Egypt went up to go fight the Hittites. And as he went to go fight against the Hittites, the largest chariot battle in all of history, the Battle of Qatar, occurred between Ramses II and the Hittites. And by the way, in Ramses II writings, he wrote about the Hittites. And the Hittites spoke about that battle. So here's two different cultures that we could look and spoke about the same event. Of course, Ramses II say, you know what? I just let them go their way. And the Hittites said, we beat them and made them go home and cry. But you know... <laughs> We saw, and we're finding more and more evidence throughout the, uh, throughout the ancient lands and through ancient writings. Look, here's the Hittites here. Here's the Hittites there. Guess what? The Bible was correct after all. The Bible was correct in its history, dealing with historical things. May I show you something else? Notice with me in Daniel chapter number 5. Daniel chapter number 5. Daniel chapter number 5. And notice with me in Daniel chapter 5. And notice with me starting at verse number 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to the thousand of lords and drank wine before the thousands. Now in here it begins to speak about Belshazzar. And Belshazzar had decided he was going to throw a big party. And someone said, hey, you know what? We took some vessels of gold and stuff from some temple in Jerusalem. Why don't we use this for our party? And so they had a big a drunken party and they were using the vessels of the Lord that used to be in their tabernacle and temple. And in the middle of it, uh, something strange happened. Notice with me in verse number 5. And the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw part of the hand that wrote. Now, can you imagine you're in the middle of a party? You're a king, you're having a good time. And all of a sudden, this disembodied hand begins to write. That probably would get your attention, right? Notice in verse number 6. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts trembled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed. May I pause there? Uh, and his knees smote once against to another. When it talks about the joints of his uh, loins were loosed, that's a, a fancy way of saying he wet his pants. So here he's watching this disembodied hand write something in the wall and he looks at it and his knees begin to shake and he's so scared that he wets his pants in front of everyone. That's pretty embarrassing. Hold on to that. We'll get to that to the end of the message. Okay? Hold on to that bit. 
And the king cried aloud and said, bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans. And he begins to say, someone needs to tell me what this is about. I need to know what this is. This is important. And so they brought in all the other people. No one could tell him. Finally, the queen said, you know what? There used to be a guy named Daniel and he helped out Nebuchadnezzar. Why don't you bring him in there? Okay. And they bring in Daniel and Daniel begins to say, and, um, and an amazing story. Now let's pause. This Bethshazzar became a sticking point in history because people said, listen, we are looking through the Babylonian rules and we could find no king named Bethshazzar. The Bible must be wrong because it says Bethshazzar is the king and we find nothing in the role of the king. Where is he? The Bible is wrong. This is a made-believe story. Well... That became a troublesome thing because what do you say? Well, this is what the Bible said. But may I show you something interesting when Daniel's brought in and they tell him that they're going to, uh, to um, do something. Notice if you don't mind in verse number 16. So Daniel comes in, says that I could, uh, what do you want? Uh, what can I do for you? Verse number 16. And I have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou can read the writings and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck. Notice this. And thou shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now this is important. Because what we learned here is that Bathshazzar is not the number one king. He's number two. So the only position he could get is making Daniel number three in command. Well, with this, they were able to go through the roles and say, you know what? We had Nebuchadnezzar. Then we had his son, Evil Merodach. And then he had a son by the name of Nabonius. Nabonius. Now, Nabonius was the official king, but Nabonius didn't want to be king. He wanted to go study manuscripts out in the middle of the desert. Wanted everyone to leave him alone and go lock himself in a library. I can understand this guy. And so what he did is he went to his son, Bethshazzar, and said, Listen, I'll be the one who's got the title on the wall, whatever else. Why don't you run the kingdom while I'm gone? I'm going to go to the desert and go study. And so we understand Nabonius was the king and he's listed in the king's roles. And his son was second in command. And wouldn't you know that we found historical documents saying that exact thing and was able to prove to it that even though Nabonius was the official king, he was king in absentee and that Bathshazzar was running in, in the place when the fall of Babylon occurred and we could find documents and things. But for a long time, people would say, look, the Bible's wrong. There's no such thing. Well, isn't it nice that God's able to prove himself through other sources to say, hey, look, it is true. Here's proof of it. That the Bible is historical in everything we did. Now, uh, something else that something would give, I'm just giving some examples. I'm not going through them all, but I'm giving, trying to encourage you that the Bible's accurate. Something else that people would often give a thing to show that the Bible's not accurate is by the writings of Moses. Now, people who study uh, origin of writing and whatnot, they would say, wait, 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 this is a problem. There's no way that Moses could have wrote down the law because law writing was not invented yet. There's no way it could have happened. Writing was not invented yet. Well, wouldn't you know 
that they had studied some writings that came up called the Sinai script that was dated before 1500 BC, before the Code of Hammurabi. Code of Hammurabi, if you're not familiar with it, was a codified law that was set up in the Babylon area that became uh, the law for all of the land around them. And we could study, we've actually got the steel of Hammurabi. Now we found writings that predated that, that would show that Moses had writing invented and he could have easily had writing going. You know, I'm going through a big explanation, trying not to lose people, but trying to say that we have proof that writings existed before Moses. But, you know, you say, well, that sounds plausible. Well, in uh, years before, people say the Bible couldn't be right because we did not have writing during the time of Moses. But we now prove we did. That's research for your own self. Now, many of these things were disputed and used as evidence that the Bible's not true. But later, through archaeology and study and other sources, we have shown that all of these exist. And by the way, these aren't the only ones. The Bible is proving itself accurate all the time. I meant you go to the uh, Gulf of Aquaba, one of the arms of the Red Sea. And guess what's in the bottom of that? Chariots and chariot wheels of the Egyptians. I wonder how they could have got there. Could it be that when they were crossing the Red Sea that God had the Red Sea bury them? Hmm, I wonder where we heard that story. And we find cases all the time where God proves himself right. And it's proven over and over that the Bible is true. But let me show you one more area just to double down. Just to show you the accuracy of history of science and of prophecy. Turn with me if you wouldn't mind to one of my favorite prophecies. The book of Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. The Bible is accurate in everything it says. Now some people have an idea that inside of prophecies that prophecies given in the Bible are, are generic, that they're, could be interpreted any such way. May I tell you that the Bible prophecies are very specific? Here is a good example. Now, let's try to keep some dates in our head. The book of Isaiah is written approximately in the 700s BC, okay? The 700s BC. Inside of Isaiah 44 and 45, it describes an event that occurs in 536 BC. Now, was 700 BC before 536? It is. By quite a bit, by the way, almost 200 years of distance between Isaiah prophecy and the event that it speaks of. Let's look at the details. Notice with me in Isaiah 44, and let's pick it up in verse number 26. Isaiah 44 verse 26, that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited and to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Let's pause. At the time of Isaiah's writing, Jerusalem's still there. Jerusalem and Judea are still standing, but in this prophecy, it is saying Jerusalem's destroyed and is going to need to be rebuilt. All of the villages and the cities around Jerusalem are going to have to be rebuilt. By the way, in 536 BC, there's a decree by a certain Persian king that tells the Hebrew people to go back to their land and rebuild their city. This is something that is going to be... Now, it's pretty accurate. 
Here it's talking about in a time where the city is still standing, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to have to be rebuilt. That's a big prophecy. But it goes on. Verse number 27. That saith to the deep, be dry and I will dry up the rivers. Remember that phrase. We'll get back to it in a second. But here it's giving a prophecy that it's going to dry up the rivers. Verse number 28. That saith of Cyrus. Now this is a big deal. This prophecy is given about 200 years before the event happened. And yet God is mentioning a person by the name of Cyrus by name. Cyrus is one of only four people in the Bible that was listed by name before they were ever born. Now that's pretty accurate to be able to name who that child's what he's going to be named before he's ever born. That's pretty big. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure even to the saying of Jerusalem, thou shall be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Let's pause here. Cyrus the Great became the first emperor of the Persian Empire. And the very first thing he did was give a decree, by the way it's found in Ezra chapter 1, for the Hebrew people to go back and rebuild their temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, and lay the foundations thereof. You find that historically given in Ezra chapter number 1 in 536 BC. Now, that's pretty accurate. That's not something that could be fit by any which way to say here is a specific name of a specific person and this is what he's going to do to go rebuild a city that hasn't been destroyed yet. That's some pretty big prophecies there. What happens if the city doesn't destroyed? Well, the whole prophecy falls apart, doesn't it? But God is accurate. Notice as it goes on through chapter 45 verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. Once again God speaks about this person by name again. That speaketh to his anointed to Cyrus. Whose right hand I have holden. Notice this. To subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings. Does that phrase sound familiar? We'll get back to that in a second. To open before me the two-leaved gates, and the gate shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked way straight. I will break the pieces of gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. God says, I'm giving you this specific prophecy so you know without a doubt, I am God. So let's look. Cyrus the Great became the first of the Persian emperors and he was used to destroy the Babylonian Empire. Now let's give a timeline. Isaiah is written about 700 BC. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Samaria, 722 BC. Now at this time, Babylon is not an empire. What happens at 615 BC and 612 BC, the Babylonian Empire takes over and destroys the um, 
the Assyrian Empire a hundred years after this. Now what happens is that the Babylonian Empire grows big under Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and he destroys Jerusalem in 586 BC. And he destroys Jerusalem and the surrounding cities levels them. Kidnaps the Hebrew people and transport them all throughout the Babylonian Empire. They're not there. Now Cyrus the Great decides, you know what, let's destroy Babylon. The problem is, is that Babylon has these huge walls that would span up 80 feet and they were so wide that you could take four four horse drawn carriages. So a carriage that had four horses drawing it. You could take four of them side by side. By the way, four times four is 16. You could take 16 horses side by side and run around the top of the the walls. And that's pretty thick walls. And so the Babylonians said nobody could conquer us because nobody could break our walls. Now in the middle of the um, ba- city of Babylon with its huge walls, they had one of the major cities of the world, the Tigris River. Now Cyrus the Great says, listen, we can't break down the walls. Let's do something else. And so him and his men dammed up the Tigris River. By the way, it's like damming up the Mississippi. It's a big feat. It's not like a little stream. They dammed up the whole uh, and diverted the, the, the uh, city, uh, the river of the city and dammed it up for the purpose of walking underneath the city and that dry riverbed through the two-leaved gates, chapter 45, verse 1. And that saith to the right hand that I behold him to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of the kings to open before him the two-leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. Now when the Babylonian guards who were standing at the other side of the, the dry riverbed on the inside of the walls, when they saw the river dry up, they go, you know what, this isn't good. And we really don't like this Belshazzar guy. And so they open up the gates and allowed Cyrus and his army to climb underneath. And to go into the city without conquering the walls. Now at the same time that Cyrus is damming up the, the river and getting ready to go through. Daniel chapter 5 is happening where Belshazzar is having a big party. He doesn't realize that Cyrus and his army is outside. Doesn't realize they're damming up. He's having a big party. And he sees this disembodied wall uh, hand saying, listen, tonight you're going to die. And remember, he loosed the loins of his thing. He wet his pants. That's what God said 200 years ago. He is so specific and so accurate. He predicted the king would wet himself. That is pretty accurate. That's pretty amazing. And so Cyrus and his army walked into the city of Babylon and took it without pretty much firing a shot because Belshazzar is drunk and going blah, 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 blah. And Cyrus just goes and takes it all. That's pretty amazing. And God spoke about it 200 years before it happened. Now why am I telling you this? Well first of all I love this story. It's pretty amazing. But what we're trying to show is the accuracy of God's word. That when it speaks about scientific things. The Bible is accurate. Even on creation. The great flood. Jonah and the whale. All of that. The Bible, when it deals with historical things, has proven accurate time and time and time again. And when it deals with prophetic things, the Bible 
is accurate. So why make a big deal out of this? Well, remember as we spoke about the inerrancy of God's word this morning, we understand that if the Bible is accurate and there are no mistakes, that this being God's word carries with it his authority. And that if God is accurate in all these things and we recognize it, then our position is that we submit ourselves under the authority of God's word and obey God's word. Because this is what God has given us to do. God's word is accurate in all things. You know what that means? That God could accurately tell you what you should do in your family life. The Bible should tell you what you should do in your personal life. The Bible can guide you. The Bible can give you answers. It is accurate. It will not lead you astray. Lead us on a plain path. We could go to the Bible for wisdom. We could go to the Bible for direction. We could go to the Bible for what we need because the Bible is accurate. The Bible is a Bible written by God. This is God's word. It's not man's word. It is God's word. Therefore, we need to obey God's word in all things because God knows what he's talking about. God knows what he's talking about in science. Some people say, I can't obey the Bible because the Bible's not true in science. I don't believe in creation. I don't believe in the flood. I don't believe in this. Well, the Bible says (laughs) that you need to because the Bible is accurate in those things and it's proven itself accurate. Well, I don't want to obey the Bible. You know, as we said this morning, the only reason why people look for reasons to disobey God's word is because they don't want to obey it in the first place. That's the only reason to discount God's word because it's proven itself scientifically, historically, and prophetically. The Bible is true. So how is your obedience to God's word? Are you at the place where I could take it or leave it? May I just show you something that I was studying for my own edification, preparing for a a future Sunday school study? Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As you're turning to Psalm 119, in Isaiah 45 where we just left, God gave the principles of the treasures of darkness. What is the principles of the treasures of darkness? That the worst things that happen to us can turn to be the greatest things that happen to us if it brings us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God will prove himself over and over and over. Notice what the psalmist said. The psalmist had gotten to the place, by the way, this is a different study, but I personally believe the psalmist of 119 is Daniel himself. And that Daniel is by himself and he's in a hostile place where people don't want him to obey the Bible. That he's not at a place where people have to obey Judaism. In fact, they're trying to say, Daniel, shut up, stop. We don't want to obey that anymore. And so people are purposely in the text we're at now are actually lying on him on purpose to besmirch his good name. Notice with me in Psalm 119, starting at verse 65. Psalm 119, 65. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word. Now, remember, he's now in the midst of affliction. And you know what he said? It is well. God, you are right and good to allow trouble in my life. You are good to allow bad things to happen. Remember, we started off with Job. And Job was put on trial. And Job had to have the place where he said, God is still good and God is still right. But Job, your your kids are dead. You lost your family. You lost everything. God is still good and God is still right. 
Thou has dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. By the way, if you trust someone, you're willing to listen to them. Do you trust God? Then will you listen to him? Verse number uh, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept thy word. Treasures in darkness. He was going the wrong path. God afflicted him. God is attention. And now he's serving God. God is good. And God is right. He was good to allow that affliction. Verse 68. Thou art good. Here, we just said that. God is good. And dost good. So not only are you good. The things that you do are good. You are always good. And you are always right. Because you're good and you're always right. Teach me thy statutes. Because I could trust your word. Because your word is good. Teach me your Bible. I want to know more about it. The proud have forged a lie against me. But I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Listen, as people are lying against him, he had to make a decision. I don't care what they say. I'm still going to obey God's word. I could trust God's word. God's word will lead me the right way. But their heart is as fat as grease. But I will delight in thy law. He says, listen, it doesn't matter how evil they are. doesn't matter how bad they get. I'm going to respond properly. I am going to delight in God's word. Do you know that you could read the Bible without delighting in it? If you trust God and you trust his word and you trust that he's good, you should delight in reading his Bible and learning about it. Verse number 671, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. So the situation, God, you're good. Again, he just said, it's good for me. I'm glad you afflicted me, God. I needed that affliction. That I might learn thy statutes. The principles of treasures in darkness. The worst things that happen to us can turn to be the greatest things that happen to us. If it brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. God you were good to allow these things because they made me realize I need the Lord. Notice as he sums this up in 72. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. He says now God your word is my treasure. Why? Because I saw that you are accurate in everything that you said. You are good and you are right. I now delight in your word. I now treasure your word. This is more valuable to me. So as we speak about the inerrancy of God's word, as we speak about the accuracy of God's word, the conclusion that God is trying to work in your life is get you to the place where you treasure God's word. Where you delight in God's word. So again, may I ask that question? Is God's word what you delight in? Do you enjoy reading the Bible or is it a chore? Is it a something you could take it or leave or is it something that you have to have? The more that you realize how good God is and the more that you realize that this Bible is correct and this Bible could lead you on the right and it's going to give you wisdom, it's going to show you knowledge, the more that you will treasure this book. We're not treasuring this book because it's a lie. We're treasuring this book because it's proven correct over and over and over. Do you treasure God's word? Do you read God's word? Do you delight in God's word? 
Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.